unlock levels, and as you play, you collect upgrades that increase your damage by, like, 3%, but if you play for long enough and you grind the upgrades enough, you can get one that increases it to 5%, and it's like, why do I need, like, loot boxes and level, like, caps on my single-player story-driven shoot-em game? Cause oh, and I have to interrupt because while we're talking about level caps and loot boxes, uh, as if as as naturally talking about the the lines a palm reader would see our lives on in our palms, this is the Big Bang Theory. Theory. Hi, I'm Nick. Hi, I'm Kyle, and this one is going to be. I'm calling it now. This is going to be a super nerdy one. Not like they're not always nerdy, but I am just committed to delving into like granular nerd analysis. This week, we are going to drown you in uh, in nerdiness. We're just going to, you're going to choke in it. You're going to be swallowing it like toxic muck. And you're going to be like, please, please, no more. I just want to see my family. But you don't get to see your family anymore. You're down here in the nerd dirt with us. I was not ready for that myself. And I was like, is this going to get horny? Is this what a horny thing might be. This doesn't feel horny. Oh God, what's happening? But yes, uh, that is what's happening. We, uh, yeah, sometimes before we start the show, we're like, ah, not feeling super nerdy today. Kind of had a normal, regular person week. But yeah, had to had to pump the brakes enough to get the show started because boy, oh boy, talk about graphics cards and video game principles. And But what we usually talk about on this television show is the television show, The Big Bang Theory. I say television show twice. This is the podcast about a television show. Please forgive me for the first time. It's it's fine. We like the show fine. But we also like making fun of it and then talking about things we'd rather be doing, uh, such as talking about graphics card and cool video game stuff. So Kyle, you are shitting all over one modern AAA game. Please, what is what is the other one, if I may ask? Well, I just want to say, so I, I ended up on the exact spot on the map that I was supposed to be, but there was nothing, and I kept dying, and I was so frustrated. And it turned out, oh, no, I was right the first time. It's just to get the door to open, you have to shoot a random module that doesn't say, like, shoot me, and there was no tutorial that says sometimes you're going to come to doors and you're going to open them by shooting these random things. It was just there. I and... just had I just had an old-school gamer trauma reaction, Kyle. Maybe I've talked about this on the podcast before, but are you familiar with the Sonic 3 barrel? That uh... I am not. Okay. So what you're describing in Sonic the Hedgehog 3, like the original Sega Genesis Sonic the Hedgehog 3, you know, it's like any other Sonic game. You push any of the buttons and you jump. If you push down and a jump button, you spin. Those are all of the mechanics of the game for three games that is it that is all sonic has to be that is all you know and when you play sonic 3 nothing's changed until you get to this one like carnival circus amusement park level or whatever and then you start jumping on uh these these barrels that have a little bit of give when you jump on them you see they go up and down and it's like oh okay well I guess I have to like jump on this in a rhythm or whatever so it goes up and down enough so I can get over this other platform that I have to get over it's it's for whatever reason in this level of all sonic levels you must go past this specific point but you can't jump high enough to get over it and in that level for this one single barrel you can move the barrel by pushing up and down on the d-pad <laughs> something that you're not told that has never happened anywhere in one of these games ever before and is featured only in that part of that one level and I mean, I'm talking about it now is how mad I'm about it. That's I was like, what, 30 years ago, and I'm still mad about it. So no, I kind of, I remember a similarly a thing with a Sonic, like I only played because I was a cool kid. So I had a Game Gear and the, the, the Sonic that was on the Game Gear, it had levels where you would hang glide on a glider, but it never told you like how you were supposed to use the gliders in advance. And you only got one shot to like... Like if you if you tried to interact with the glider and you didn't know what you were doing, you would immediately fall to your death and die and have to start the level over. So there was like a there was like a period of like a year of playing that game where I was like, yeah, it's weird that this game is designed to just end randomly at this part where you just leap off the cliff to your death at the abyss. That seems like a weird way to design yeah. a game. But Strange you know, I message. don't I don't I don't make video games. 
But no, I really like Control because in many ways it feels like a like one of those weird PS1 games with, you know, like, you know, it's all like weird voice acting and strange psychological themes and a bunch of like random gray mooms and monsters and stuff like Silent Hill or something or Siphon Filter or something like that. So I was really digging it, except I remember the other thing that those games were famous for was terrible, terrible, just getting lost up your own ass level design and i feel like control does that but the other game has no such excuse because it was made by bethesda and they should know better and that was the wolfenstein the new order which is a pretty fun game but there came like a level in that game where i was like in like a kill box and you're just going down this little corridor in this kill box with an npc and the npc at a certain point just stops following you and apparently there's something i'm supposed to do that will make that npc continue to follow me but hell if i know what that is and so I am just stuck in this kill box getting shot up time after time after time. No idea how to make the NPC move forward because that is not clear. And there are no, like, hints or tips or stuff like that. And I'm like, what What happened? We used to know how to do stuff like this. I, I swear to God we're actually going to talk about this TV show at some point. But, you know, we, we started talking about all this video game nonsense when you asked whether AAA games have just gotten worse. And when you know you're describing these things, and I just remembered in Final Fantasy 15, which is broken up into like maybe 15 chapters. About maybe there was that a fun coincidence, you know. But uh, I think it was like chapter eight or chapter 13. There was one specific chapter near the end that people hated so much that in a later patch they gave you the option to just skip that chapter. You do like this. You usually have a party of uh, four people, and you have this one chapter where you do a lone solo mission where you only have like two or three spells you can use, and it's just a lot of wandering around. And Square, who published that, well, Square Enix, they, they, did, they did a whoopsie. Like, they released this game, and then they were like, man, that level did stink, guys, you're right. Okay, well, it's still in there if you want to play it, but you can push a button just to skip it. And so I think the answer, Kyle, is that, yeah, they're just getting worse. Video games are getting worse. (laughs) All right. Well, I will just have to live with that knowledge, I guess. Uh, Anyway, so on this, this uh, is the podcast where every week we review an episode of The Big Bang Theory. And I have to say uh, this week uh, was a wild ride for me because um, I immediately, when it started, I felt... A deep, deep dread, a chill ran down my spine into the pit of my stomach, the likes of which I have not felt watching the show in many a moon. Uh, but then it wasn't so bad. It was actually pretty good, at least to me. I don't know how Nick feels about it. Kyle, but... it's funny It's funny you say that because I had the exact same feeling. My notes for this episode today begin with, uh, I, I see when I, oh, well, not even the episode. This is why I think maybe for different reasons, but... My, my notes say, when I see the episode title, I reflexively utter in, oh no, um, <laughs> and that's before scene one. And so if it's the image that upsets you, I also understand why that I think is, but I myself was like, oh god damn it, they're going to do a stupid Christmas episode. And then it's not just a Christmas episode, though, is it, Kyle? <laughs> no, it's a Dungeons and Dragons Christmas episode. Yes. And the, and the second they said Dungeons and Dragons, and I realized that they weren't just like doing a one a one off joke, but that they were actually committed to. Uh, no, the plot of this episode is going to run a, around you watching your favorite characters from the Big Bang Theory play an, a a game of Dungeons and Dragons. I immediately thought, no, please God, not like this. Well, no. No, not like this. Don't do this to me. Well, let's just like dive into it because like I, I have played my fair share of Dungeons and Dragons, but not nearly as many other, uh, not nearly as much as many other nerds of of my ilk. Uh, but I know enough, and the the D and D part of this episode, things about it did make me angry. Not like the whole plot line, but uh, well, to to get to that anger really quick. Uh, so this is season six, episode eleven, officially titled "The Santa Simulation," and quick quick summary of plot A is that yeah the the boys uh, are all together to play Dungeons and Dragons. They've all given excuses or reasons why none of the ladies can play, and they are all unhappy about it, which will turn into plot B. 
And uh, so, yeah, they, they get together to play D&D. They're all at uh, Sheldon and Leonard's house. And pretty soon into starting the adventure, Sheldon is reading a scroll that describes what they'll be doing. And then, oh, shit, here comes Santa Claus. It's Christmas-themed. Ah, Sheldon hates Christmas. Oh, he's not jolly. But you know what? It's D&D with the crew, so we're just going to soldier through in spite of his objections. That is essentially the entirety of plot A. They play Dungeons and Dragons, and it gets a little bit into Sheldon's uh, tragic childhood, I guess, but that's that's most of it. Plot B is that the ladies are so irritated by having been, you know, like jilted is a strong word, but all, all shoved aside for boys' night, that they decide they're going to have a ladies' night out. And when they decide this, they really try to rub it in the dude's faces by uh, storming into the D&D game uh, where Penny and Bernadette both reveal they are in tight, sexy dresses and Amy is dressed pretty normal, but also, you know, feeling herself. And here is where my anger begins, is that the reason plot... This is where plot A, like, merges with plot B, where Raj, on a Christmas... Eve or like Christmas time game with his friends. Buddy time. The whole night for hours they're going to be hanging out. He makes a rash decision and at first I'm like, he skipped his turn, that's fucked up. Raj, I'm not on your side. And then in in return, he gets immediately killed off with no one having any interest in helping him get back in the game. They're just like, you made your bed, now lie in it. That is so so shitty to do and then the ladies they're like uh blow off dudes none of you are coming with us and then they pop back in because raj expresses how sad he is and they're like ah now you can come and so plot b is they all go out to a bar together they try to get raj uh, a lady it's not working um amy is upset to find out that raj has had crushes on both bernadette and uh penny but not her uh, the two of them, Raj and Amy, that is, bond over being kind of the ugly duckling and no one ever really wanting them, which Raj is like, oh, you're not so bad, Penny. And then she's like, I mean, not Penny, Amy. And she's like, oh, you like me now, so I'm satisfied. We're out of here. Uh, and that's kind of the end of plot B. Yeah, it doesn't work out for Raj, but Amy gets to feel better about herself. And then the stinger scene. Uh, well, I guess, oh, God, I'm going to so carried away. Wrapping up. Plot A wraps up. They they kill Santa or whatever or they're going to and they're, or they were going to save Santa and then Sheldon refuses to. That's what it was because and this is where Sheldon's childhood trauma openly leaks out of character into the game where he's like, you know, when I was a child, my pop pop died and then you couldn't bring him back for Christmas, so we are not on good terms. And that's kind of how the game ends. Uh, and then the stinger is Sheldon finds Santa out by the Christmas tree in the front room. Uh, and Santa kills him with a cannon, and then he wakes up because it's just a nightmare. Sheldon didn't actually die from a cannon, everybody. I don't know if this was like a season finale, and people waited for months on bated breath to know whether Sheldon was killed by Santa Claus with a cannon, but it, it was a dream. It was a dream. Hey, Kyle, say something. Yes. Say anything. I talked for so long. No, I'm just going to say... I liked it. I liked every second of it. And I'll get into the specifics of why I liked it. And I liked its portrayal of D&D in just a moment. But also I like the, like, so Sheldon starts out by saying, uh, combining Christmas with Dungeons and Dragons is like combining. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I think he says it's like combining one of the best things with one of the worst things, like combining uh, grape jelly or maybe strawberry jelly with petroleum jelly. Yes. And I disagree. If there's two things <gasps> that I love, it is Dungeons and Dragons and Christmas. So to see them put together so well. It actually reminds me, one of my favorite all-time one-shots that Critical Role ever did was The Fight Before Christmas, which is basically a D&D one-shot where they uh, are a bunch of... It was actually shockingly similar to the setup of this episode in terms of... Except it's also, I guess, uh, an homage to the the Nightmare Before Christmas because uh, so basically a skeleton lich kidnaps Santa Claus and they have to go into his nightmare realm. A bunch of elves 
uh, as a bunch of elves and and rescue him. And sure enough, that episode also ends with one of the characters having a heel face turn and trying to kill Santa Claus. So I guess that's it was weird seeing something that I normally don't like, you know, be vibing so hard with something that I love. But uh, I love Christmas and I love uh, I love uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And this gave me not this episode was so weirdly on my wavelength that not only <laughs> not only does it feature Dungeons and Dragons in a way that I really appreciate it. It also had my favorite fucking Christmas carol in it because there's a point where they have to uh, where they are trapped and the the riddle that will get them out of the trap is to sing Good King Wenceslas, which only Sheldon knows all the words to. But Good King Wenceslas is a banger of a Christmas <laughs> carol. It is the easily the best Christmas carol. Sheldon sings it with gusto, and I love it. Well, and he sings the entire thing, which is where uh, Leonard was so proud of his clever little puzzle. Until uh, he realized it was like a it was like an eight minute for like six verse song. Well, and this reminds me of something, and this is a, just a question for you, Kyle, about your own D&D experience is, so something that comes up a couple times in this episode is uh, Leonard, as as the DM, uh, sets a couple puzzles up, and they're all Christmas-themed, and uh, the gang uh, that he's with actually do, like, as Kyle just mentioned, pretty well in figuring it out. Kyle, in your own D&D experience... What is your history with yourself or friends creating puzzles? Like, not stuff that's in modules or whatever, but, like, actually, like, planning little puzzles or whatever for your friends. Uh, I mean, I'm not very good at it because planning good puzzles is hard. But I do think in a good game of D&D, puzzles are essential. Okay. I think I would, I would agree. And the reason I ask is that um, my recent experiences, I think, have been mostly module-based but uh, it may have been like this when I was initially playing in high school too. But like I did not like it initially in high school because the, our our most common DM would create puzzles that he thought were clever and accessible. Yes. But instead of offering clues, he would uh, he would like lord over us with his superiority and like, oh, you can't solve my riddle. And it's like, hey man, you're right. It's Saturday though. Can we get to the next part of this thing? Yes, I get that, and I do get why that would be obnoxious. I think that generally the puzzles in like a good module are are pretty like accessible. Although I have actually I have seen some ridiculous ones, so it's like again, and that's I love this episode. Well, it's not so much in this episode, but that is you are. It's like part of D anD D is just the shitty, unintuitive puzzles. Um, yeah, and so I I totally I totally feel you on that but i also i just like how uh leonard's puzzles are all designed secretly to get them to get into the spirit of christmas they got to sing yeah. carols they have to they they convert a code into a series of bells and then it turns out it's just jingle bells yeah uh, and that was like darling i it's like the happiest i've been watching the show in a long time was when they're they're sitting there with their handbells which they presumably like realized they could use as props to help them decode this thing and they're just playing Jingle bells. It was very cute. And, you know, whether they're genuinely in the Christmas spirit or they just want to follow, like, figure out the puzzle, like, they are also into the game. Like, Sheldon, in spite of his Christmas objections, like, he's sold at this point. You know, like, he... (laughs) And that's a thing, too, is, like, you know, I skipped through the the summary to get to the end, but um, there is a point when they're playing and Sheldon gets some eggnog... And and that's kind of where it starts, where Leonard's like, oh, someone's getting in the spirit. And Sheldon's like, I enjoy this at any part of the year. Eggs are available the entire year round. You're just being foolish. But yeah, by the time they get to the bells, uh, that apprehension seems to have disappeared. But was it a ruse? Was 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 Sheldon playing the rest of them just so he could get access to that that fat red bastard? No, I think he was really into it. I think he. I think what we learn is Sheldon likes Christmas. He just he has a personal grudge against Santa Claus that he can't quite let go of. Yeah, uh, at least that's how I read it. So that can't I, be an uncommon thing for for kids that have like rough experiences that Santa can't fix for them to hate Santa. I mean, it's I don't know about real life, but it's definitely a it's definitely a recurring plot point in Christmas movies. There's always a bad guy. Not always, but like in ninety percent of Christmas movies that feature a villain, 
if the villain hates Santa Claus, it's because when he was a child, Santa Claus let him down and he has never forgiven him. I, wanna... I can, I, I have seen like six or seven different movies where it's like, how could anyone want to destroy Santa Claus? And this guy's like, let me tell you about when I was 12. Is that an idea that maybe like exists only in media? Like there is no one real or alive that um, actually dislikes Santa Claus, but everyone is like, you know, what would really turn you into a villain is if Santa Claus let you down and you took it seriously. Well, no, that... if Santa Claus, I mean, let's let's do it another way. If Santa Claus was real. So uh, it's, it's, it's one thing because I think what normally happens is even if kids get a little bit annoyed with Santa Claus, then they grow up a few years later and they're like, oh, it didn't work because Santa Claus isn't real. But imagine then if you found out that Santa Claus was real, like in most of these media where people hate Santa Claus, it's like, oh, no, there really is a dude out there whose whole job it is is to give little kids presents and I didn't get my present because he was just a dick or he was too busy or he didn't care about me or whatever. Then I think it's a ter- it's a perfectly legitimate – frankly, it's, a, it's almost the theological problem of evil. It's just like how I don't get anybody uh, – ah, fuck. I'm going there. Just like I can't understand how anyone can believe in God when the world is such a fucked up and miserable and heartless place as it is and so many people suffer needlessly – you know, and then if you found out he was real, you know, I think you'd have a legitimate grievance against him. But similarly, yeah. if you found out Santa Claus was real and you thought about, you know, you know, why doesn't he give, why doesn't Santa Claus use any of his Christmas magic to give more, you know, malaria pills or HIV vaccines to pe- to children in Africa? You red prick. That's how I would feel if Santa Claus were real. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah, it's Santa Claus. Santa Claus and God both have a lot of explaining to do. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's maybe that's and, why I play and, JRPGs. <laughs> so many of them are about killing God, but, but you're that would say. be I want a JRPG that's about killing Santa Claus. Can you imagine? In the um I was <laughs> this I feel like such an idiot. I was gonna say in the original Secret of Mana game, and then a voice in the back of my head corrected myself to be like, it's technically Saiken Densetsu too. Um but in that game, you get to fight Santa, at least. You don't kill him, but you you go to an area that you're like, is this the North Pole? That doesn't make sense, right? This is a, a cute fantasy game made by Japanese people. Like, are we at the North Pole? And then Santa shows up, and it's like, all right, this is the North Pole. I got to beat the shit out of Santa now. That's wild. I yeah. love it. I, I think he gets possessed by some sort of evil spirit and turns into a troll. And so you you have to <laughs> you got to beat the troll out of him, you know. That's maybe that is you know with like with D and D, you know, recent. I I don't know if this is something that's actually happened, but I remember you know news articles about how they were going to do it away with the idea of I think races or at least like certain races being inherently evil or whatever. And it would be fun if they tried to explain that the way to make trolls less evil is to like beat and murder them that like you know it's the troll part we have to get rid of that's the thing that's that's how we're going to keep trolls in this game is that you know as part of the the story the evil in their bodies needs to be beaten out of them wait so you i mean okay so just yeah okay I started to say, how is that different from from how RPGs normally work? It's not. Okay. <laughs> That's, yeah, you're just you're just introducing that characters have internalized the racism of the setting. Well, exactly. Well, I mean, that's this whole thing. But like, you know, to the extent that nerds are like, hey, there might be some problematic elements in D anD D. You are eventually gonna have to cope with like. Yeah, exactly why it is you've been so comfortable killing all these. Actually, that's another funny thing about. Uh, I wanna, I wanna write a fucking essay about Xenoblade Chronicles Three. I tells you, and not even because it's like the best game I've ever played. It's not. It's really good, but it's not like blowing my mind or anything. But uh, I realize that I am, I'm too woke as I'm with my gang, and my my cute main character is running across the plains. And as he says for the 50th time, uh, I don't want to do this, but you're in my way before slaughtering another group of harmless animals that just happen to be on the countryside. I'm like, yeah, that's classic. Like, 
manifest destiny colonizer mindset right there. I am not the good guy in this game. I am just slaughtering everything in sight. <laughs> yes. But I it's cute. That. It's cute. It's fun. <laughs> we are really, I, I warned us, but you know, we are really going off the deep end. I love it. I'm not going to let this momentum slow down. So next on my list, the reason I like the way they portray Dungeons and Dragons in this episode is I'm not saying, I think this episode was obviously whoever consulted on it. Their memory of Dungeons and Dragons was based on something that was prior to not just fifth edition, but it felt it was prior to Wizards of the Quote of the Coast acquiring the licensing. I could tell because the yeah. type of Dungeons and Dragons that they did you just yuck me? <laughs> no, I just started laughing because I was going to ask, like, you know, you, you just couldn't smell Gygax's stink on this. You just knew you could detect it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's exactly because if there's certain there are things that let you know in this episode, and I know, like, normally they do such shallow consulting, but either someone who was in the writer's room already, you know, played a lot of D&D back in the day, or uh, or they brought in a really good consultant, but for some reason he wasn't, like, a consultant who had played any of the recent Dungeons & Dragons. But um, he... There are a couple of things that are very specific to the mechanics of, like, old-school Dungeons & Dragons that happen in, like, the first 30 seconds of them playing this game. The first is that as Wallowitz is looking for uh, – is trying to follow the trail to track Santa Claus, he specifically requests – or he specifically notes that he's checking for secret doors and – uh, Leonard rolls some dice and tells him that he he's found a secret door. So I don't. You would have no way of knowing this, but in the original uh, first edition and basic rules of D and D, there is a table that denotes how how good the different characters and character classes are at spotting secret doors, and it's a one in six table. So Leonard rolled a dice, got the correct number. We don't see what it is, but it was. He, he rolled the dice that indicated that a secret door would have been found. Um, which I just, and then, you know, they all stop and they're supposed to be checking for traps, but Raj, Raj, um, bursts in and he immediately eats it in the face and dies. And that is again, a very old school, merciless way of playing Dungeons and Dragons, which is the traps don't get, you don't get saving throws. You don't get, uh, you don't get all of your cantrips. You don't have like quadruple the number of hit points of any of the damage that a particular attack gets uh, done a lot of them were like you know if you don't say in advance that you're being careful then we are allowed to kill you by fiat and that (laughs) is how it goes um and you know a lot of people it's just like that's just not how anyone plays D&D today and if that's not true that's just not how the most popular version of D&D is played today and I don't have anything against um people who are whose main experience with Dungeons and Dragons is 5e because that's a perfectly uh that's a great way to play and it's introduced a lot of people and it's fun and it's very uh player friendly in the sense that you can really craft and experience your character but there are many of us who long for the you know even me who this whole version of Dungeons and Dragons was over by the time like I was old enough to do math but uh as an adult I have grown hungry for the old system of D and D, which was really just like it was a meat grinder that your char- that you put a level one or level two character through, where nine like you played very carefully, but the most likely outcome was that your character died, and then you rolled a new one, and the next game you were someone else who was starting out at level one, and that was how you played. That was your experience of Dungeons and Dragons, and there are people who uh, there's a whole movement of people like trying to like bring back or reinvent versions of that version of the game because it's it has its own novel rewards uh you know one of the main ones as you see in this episode is that it places a lot of focus on the setting and on intuitiveness and cleverness and being able to solve puzzles and traps uh over like relying over much on character abilities or the fucking bane of 5e which is random ability checks that don't tie into the narrative so at no point in here did anyone say you know i want to roll an investigation check 1500 times which 
you know, again, I'm not trying to call out 5e. There are times the investigation check mechanic can come in handy from time to time. But another way of saying that is just like I look around the room and I move carefully and I like wave a 10 foot pole in front of me in case there's any like trip wires on the floor. And that is also a valid and immersive way to play Dungeons and Dragons that is more in fiction than saying I roll this dice and I add my perception score to it. Do I now tell me magic DM is there a trap here or isn't there? Oh, I rolled a natural one, so no matter what you tell me, I'm going to assume you're lying and try to turn this into some game of reverse psychology. I hate that. You just just now, with talking about the roles, reminded me of something, which before I talk about I want to first mention that, like, hey, everybody, when I told you we were in a nerd mood, I didn't even expect this much, okay? But we are here in the thick of it. <laughs> but, well, yeah, when you talk about the, the shallowness of just referring to what specific uh, ability you want to use and die you want to roll, what you reminded me of is, this isn't going to be my recommendation, but uh, there's a YouTuber, H-Bomber guy, pretty popular, and he had a video about why Fallout 3, in his opinion, totally sucks. And part of that was how in previous Fallout games, you know, your abilities gave you, you know, like your stats, actually, which is your basic character stats, gave you a general understanding of what your character could do in a situation, but the outcomes were still unpredictable. Like, if you fire a gun, yeah, four out of five times, you're going to fire it right if you've got that good stat. 20% of the time, because it's an old busted gun, or because you're not as good as you think you are, it's going to misfire. But you don't get to see that stat. You just know that, like, with how generally good I am at this, I can trust that this is going to work most of the time, and you have to go off that vibe in making decisions. And what uh, the H-Bomber guy points out uh, in Fallout 3 is that they, particularly for speech roles, but for anything, you will always be given your percentage of success, which is directly tied to the stat, and so you will know when making any sort of choice in advance whether or not you're going to fail it, whether you should do it in the first place. And so you're never in a situation where you will unpredictably botch something you're not quite good enough at. Because if you're not good enough at it, you know that you'll fail and then you just don't do it at all until you get good enough at it. And actually, thinking about even Xenoblade Chronicles 3 and like JRPGs, I really feel like the more you kind of strip away some of like the the tinkering and the percentages and stuff, like the more you're like, oh, <laughs> this character is a strong guy and that's why he hits hard. I don't need to look at every single little bit of detail. I can just kind of believe my character has these abilities and it makes sense in this context. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting carried away now, but... No, I'm with you. It's it's the character the the classes in JRPGs used to be abstractions of their like inherent place in the world or the role they were supposed to play but all of the characters were similar enough to each other that it's like hey i'm not just i'm not the rogue in this party i'm just a guy who's slightly better at who's slightly better at climbing walls than you but i'm also like an explorer i'm also like it's like the 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 rogue still fought the the fighter still you know st- you know, went around trying to accumulate as much treasure as possible. Oh, the right, wizard yes. was like a completely useless guy, like ninety percent of the time. But every now and then, you know, he he would come in and in the clutch. But it wasn't like you tailored your whole approach to playing Dungeons and Dragons based on what class you picked. You played just like you were a guy trapped in a dungeon, and then occasionally the class that you picked modified the roles. And we have gotten so far away from that. Um, with like you know now I'm a I'm a level twelve gloom stalker who's multiclassed in you know vengeance paladin that it's just like it's like you know if you I mean I'm giving five e a hard time but if you want to know the people who are absolutely m- m- the worst at this it's Pathfinder <laughs> because if you look like I was trying oh so I before you say any more about Pathfinder I just want to know my only experience is that I've never used Pathfinder. But I absolutely am adjacent, directly adjacent to the kind of nerds that were really into Pathfinder. And so you're about to teach me something about my own friends. (laughs) Uh, It's just so 
I um because I really wanted to get into Pathfinder, um, and I got the second edition. And actually, one of the and every time I actually think about playing it, I'm reminded why I'm never going to play Pathfinder because. <laughs> Uh, it gives you so like basically it's so much about character customization and like picking the correct feats and you know the correct tables that it's basically like a it turns into like a tabletop version of World of Warcraft right down to the part where like if you don't upgrade like your boots of enchantment to the next level at the right time your character just becomes worthless at higher level encounters and stuff like that so like so like your characters. Um, and then it becomes like who can who can uh, break the game the best. So like I went, I got my new computer, and one of the games I was interested in is this game called Kingmaker, which is a direct adaptation of a Pathfinder uh, campaign. But I was like, I was looking into it, and I was like, uh, you know, what if I wanted to play this game and be a necromancer? And it was like, and I just found this Reddit thread, which was just page after page of people debating the correct way to do a necromancer build in pathfinder it's like do you do it as a cleric with this domain or do you do it as a wizard you know you would think a wizard specializing in necromancy would go oh but that's so dumb everybody knows a sorcerer with the undead fount is the correct way to build a necromancer in this game although you should probably figure out a couple of levels of cleric and how many hip dice do we want to optimize for being able to raise and control at the same time and i'm just like this is this is at this point it's basic basically it turns into like a mech game or it's, <laughs> yeah where you get that like steel battalion where you're like i i could just be sitting around a table with my friends but each of us needs this two foot by two foot board <laughs> of individual meters and buttons because my <laughs> or like yeah it'd be like if you're sitting down and you're like hey i'm gonna play as a rogue tonight and uh, to make it as realistic as possible, I am going to have all of the equipment I anticipate using here and all of its weights and how much I personally could care. It's like, no, we're the, the idea, like, it, and this isn't exactly what you're saying, but I'm going to piggyback on it. Is like, yeah, I, I really want, well, you, you already said it, like that level of detail, like reversed to just abstraction that like, and something that I really the bring up Xenoblade Chronicles three again. Um, something I really enjoy about it that I've been thinking about like for a long time, like specifically with video game RPGs, is that like, well, and 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 how they compare to real world RPGs is that something that I I've, real world RPGs that sounds so weird to say, but you know what I mean. Tabletop, <laughs> we yes. say tabletop RPGs. Tabletop RPGs, but that something that's always kind of annoyed me, and I have finally acclimated to is just having to deal with percentages and stuff um, in tabletop because I'm like, this is what video games do. Like, I just kind of want the storytelling elements, but, like, the basic mechanics, I don't give a shit. Like, that's why I play video games because then I can just get a story and I don't have to worry about that stuff. And then to the extent that, like, video games can also get rid of those percentages and stats and everything... And hide them behind the scenes and just let me know that, like, yeah, I'm the beefy guy. If I play this as a beefy guy, I will have more success than if, as a beefy guy, I, for some weird reason, try to get really good at magic. I don't need to see every little piece of that. I don't want to to micromanage that. But if there's a system that behind the scenes keeps track of all of that and I can play a story with a character the way I want to, like, that's the dream for me. But, ugh. <sighs> Video games. Real, real tabletop games. Life. Yeah. Uh, what? Wait, I'm deciding a... I'm, I'm going to do a double recommendation at the end of this episode because uh, I had something I had something that was already going to be recommended, but all this talk about Dungeons and Dragons, I feel like I'm going to do a PSA well, at the end of this episode. Let's let's slide right into that because we we're going a while about this shit. And uh, anything oh, else about the, the episode itself that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, super quickly. Uh, so I think the reason Sheldon dreams about a cannon at the end of the episode is because it is a cannon that kills Rasha's character. Oh. 
Yes, that is exactly why. Yes, if you didn't if you didn't cover that, it, not that it necessarily matters, but in case you thought that was out of left field, we also find out that Leonard is so into making Sheldon appreciate Christmas because Leonard had a bunch of shitty Christmases when he was a kid, which makes sense because we already know that Leonard's mom is kind of a piece of work. Um, and then uh, once again, I feel like we see the interesting thing about. Uh, Oh, we didn't even talk about, like, in this episode, for some reason, Stuart is, like, one of the characters who gets to hang out with the boys. Um, In fact, he stays with them after Raj has left, which is sort of uh, funny and good for Stuart, I guess, you know, slowly creeping in there. But when Raj goes out, we get a we get another good glimpse of at first I was like, well, he's talking to them all and he's hardly drunk. So he must just not be like, again, it's unevenly written. But the second he starts talking about how, no, I would never be attracted to Amy. Are you kidding? I was like, ah, yes, this is the Raj I missed. It's like drunk talking to women and just being completely disrespectful and obtuse. Yes. And that was that was a fun scene, too, because when you say that, like, you know he's obtuse uh it's it's true but like the extent of it is like penny and bernadette are at the same table with him and amy as he's emphasizing how unattracted he is to amy (laughs) and they're like are you sure about that raj are you sure you don't have any feelings for her and it's just not clicking so that was a good raj moment yeah um all right so with that Yeah, let's move on to our recommendations. The things that we're doing when we're not talking about this TV show and just being real nerds out in the world. Uh, I have one lined up. It has nothing to do with what we've talked about so far. (laughs) Well, how about this? I have an idea. I'm going to do one that's related to the episode now because I've, and then you can do yours and I will do my one that has nothing to do with the episode. Perfect. We'll bounce it back and forth like a tennis ball. Uh, So the first thing I was going to say is. Again, I don't want. I know a lot of people like started Dungeons and Dragons by listening to actual plays or by playing with their friends, uh, fifth edition. And I want to make it very clear I don't have, because some people you will encounter out in the world who have some of the feelings that I have expressed about Dungeons and Dragons, they really like take sort of like a hardcore versus casual approach. Uh, to Dungeons and Dragons, and I don't, I don't think that at all. If you want to, if you like Fifth Edition, and that's the version of Dungeons and Dragons that you're comfortable playing, and that's the only one you want to explore, that's fine, and I don't judge you for that. But other people will, and you should be prepared. What I wanted to say is, if you are interested in exploring any of the things that I was talking about related to Dungeons and Dragons and playing a game more like uh, we were describing, there are two separate versions of it that i would recommend the first and probably uh easiest place to start is there's a game called old school essentials which is literally just a reskin of dungeons and dragons uh it's called dungeons and dragons bx which stands for dungeons and dragons basic slash advanced or basic slash expert uh which was a version of the game that was created in the uh, early 80s as like uh, it was intended to be like a gateway for like old, for Dungeons and Dragons but it had some optional rules variants that people liked more and so it became sort of its old its own thing and it is very much uh, there's a lot of cool content out there that was created for the BX version of Dungeons and Dragons that still holds up really well and that can still play but the rule set is hard to obtain so what uh, what this company called, I think it's Necrotic Gnome, or, uh, and they, and basically what they did because it was an open license is they, they just collected the rules to BX and they republished them in like little manuals that are incredibly easy to uh, read and pass out to the players, so you can get little booklets. Because uh, again, unlike uh, unlike Fifth Edition, the rules for BX are like incredibly incredibly short and. Uh, and consequently, you just need like a little pamphlet to play them and to create your characters. Um, and then the main thing is just like having a module prepared. So of which there are, there are many out there. So you can, again, you can use a module if you have modules that um, or you want to get PDFs that go back to the original Halcyon days of the 80s. You can do that. But also people are constantly making new content um, for these. Uh, the main quirks of uh, old school essentials slash Dungeons and Dragons basic expert are um, they don't break up race and class. So you can be a wizard 
or a cleric or a thief or a fighter or an elf or a dwarf. And if you are an elf or a dwarf, then it is like elves are good at both fighting and magic and dwarves are good at like fighting and have some other special skills. Oh, and halflings. So like you you can play as an elf, but your elf doesn't have a separate class. He is both an elf and his class is that he is an elf. Um, and then um, and then you can you can play. And that's a pretty cool. Like I said, there are a lot of uh, interesting um published adventures that you could then play and have fun with uh in that system and again just the layout of the books the typography of them is just fun and it's very good and accessible and easy to read um so i have ordered my own copy of that because i backed a kickstarter campaign but it hasn't come in yet the other if you want something that is a little more um in keeping with the spirit of that, but plays just a little bit more like Dungeons and Dragons as you are used to it, then I would recommend this other crazy game, which I have actually recommended before, called Dungeon Crawl Classics. So Dungeon Crawl Classics is also intended, it, it's almost exactly the same in spirit as Old School Essentials, but it modifies some of the rules so that it's a little more in keeping with what you might expect if you started out playing 5th edition. You know, there are, there are uh, saving throw tables, which... Uh, BX doesn't have doesn't do quite the same way and um, there are uh, some other just quality of life things but what it does is it just introduces it still keeps in it still has an incredibly simple system of uh, playing your various classes um, but what it introduces instead is a lot of randomness so like you know when your wizards cast spells sometimes it you have to roll every single time and sometimes if you can you know most of the time the spell just goes how you want it and uh you even keep the spell you don't lose your spell slot but if you roll if you roll really well then something uh amazing and kind of can happen that's much much better than you wanted and if you roll really shitty then something terrible and weird can happen like your character will randomly you have to roll on a separate table to see if you're like character spouts three eyes or something like that um so there's all sorts of random stuff that can happen and and also uh your fighters have a critical hit table um so that like every time you roll a natural 20 then you look in your table and it's like ah you know now you roll to see do you cut this guy's arm off or maybe you cut his you pierce his eye socket out or something like that so it's just it tries to instead of making the onus of what's interesting in the game how powerful your character becomes it makes the your interest in the game what completely random shit that's sort of like uh, nick was talking about with the unpredictability of old school fallout you will do things and incredibly unpredictable and random things that are kind of weird or funny will happen and they're not all good in fact a lot of the time they're bad like one of the joke like you like all of the settings are you going through weird dungeons and like a lot of the time just your character dies and you have to create a new one, but it's fun. It's it. You're like it. Part of the spirit of these type of games is just learning to embrace that and just learning to create new characters quickly and accurately or, um, and just going with the flow. So I would recommend uh, both of those games. Uh, try them both out. See which one you like more. Nice. Well, uh, we- and one more time, that's old school essentials and uh, dungeon crawl classics. Both available if you want to go online at uh, their various websites with a Google search, but also all of this stuff is on a website that has every every PDF of every role playing game ever created called Drive Through RPG. Oh, Drive Through RPG. Well, I while I'm going to recommend a video game, it somehow has nothing to do with what we've talked about so far. Like we've been like so so deep into this like nerd RPG. What? a game should be shit uh but something that i feel like i should have recommended and maybe i already did maybe i'm having brain problems again i haven't been playing as much since i started playing xenoblade is uh, a game called cozy grove doesn't that sound nice cozy Uh grove is there a trap no there's no trap that's it really is a cozy grove and it might be reductive to say it's basically Animal Crossing, but it is. It's basically Animal Crossing, but it has just enough differences that I like it. And I mean, to talk about the similarities, first of all, you are a villager 
uh, in this case specifically, you're a, a scout of the spirit scouts, paranormal like boy and girl scouts. You go to an island, uh, and instead of villagers, the island is haunted by uh, cartoonish humanoid bears, cute little bears. And so you go around, you know, you, you, you do errands for people, and you get money to buy resources, and you craft things, and all that other stuff you do in Animal Crossing. But the big difference for me, and the reason I didn't like Animal Crossing, is that I never really felt... I never understood why I was doing any of the things I was doing. Like, I'm on an island, and I'm like, okay, I can go dig holes and catch fish, but to what end? Uh, this game, the, the bears, the villagers that you're interacting with, uh, they're all ghosts, and they're all on the island because they have unresolved trauma. <laughs> and so, you doing favors for them and improving the island slowly over time uh they they begin to open up to you so you get their backstories and uh you know i'm not i'm not done with the game yet but everyone kind of takes for granted that they're trapped there forever because their unfinished business will never be done i i got a feeling i'm gonna finish some business for these for these for these bears uh but yeah like i could describe more of it but it really is easiest put is it's yeah it's it's Animal Crossing, but with, like, a bigger goal. And so, if you're like me, and wanted Animal Crossing to be your jam, and then had to find out the hard way, it definitely isn't. Uh, this is just different enough that it's it's hooked me. Oh, and also, another thing is that, uh, similar, but I think a little more clearly than Animal Crossing, is uh, it's the world exists in real time. You know, 8 a.m., wherever you're playing is 8 a.m. in the game. And there is only so much shit you can do in a day. The game is not meant to be played more than an hour or two. And when you're done, usually someone in the game will be like, Hey man, there's not really anything else you can do for now. Like, maybe go take a break. And I'm like, thank you, game. <laughs> thank you for not making me feel like I have to keep up with this all the time. Uh, and in respecting my time. So it's nice. Yeah. Uh, cozy Grove. <laughs> And then, Kyle, you said you had two recommendations, but you gave two recommendations. Was there another separate thing to recommend, or was that both of them? Uh, it's kind of a... After after such high energy this episode, though, it's going to be kind of a bummer, but whatever. Hey, uh, hey, we're, we're, we're chilling out. You know, we had all the RPG stuff. We just passed through Cozy Grove. Now, take us to, take us to Sad Town. Okay. So, I became obsessed with a play that I heard about through TikTok and that I then watched on YouTube that is just it totally blew my mind and uh, I would recommend people watch it although I would warn you that you, it will give you uh, the existentialisms the play is called Mr. Burns and it is like a very like you know modern postmodern play uh in the sense that um well I've, i'll just uh like i'll just tell you what it's about um it it's not that it's not that old i guess that's all i was trying to say is it was it first came out i think like in 2008 or 2010 or something like that okay um and the premise of the play uh when the play begins is yeah i'm just gonna summarize the play so when the play begins, there has been some sort of mass catastrophe where the first thing that happened is that the power grid uh, went down and so there's no electricity. Uh, and that would be bad enough. But even worse than that is when the power grid went down uh, either alongside or because of or as a result of uh, – most of the power plant, the nuclear power plants in the United States have overheated and had various forms of meltdowns. And so consequently, at the beginning of the play, we are watching this group of survivors huddled around a dumpster fire in the middle of the Midwest somewhere, you know, uh, just trying to keep warm and safe uh, in, in the immediate aftermath of all of this. Uh, and they're, uh, you know, when they meet other survivors, they go through their notebooks, you know, to tell them the names of anybody that they've met 
in case that like, you know, just so they can have a record of anybody who you might love who's still alive out there um, because no one knows and no one knows what's going on and no one, no one even knows exactly like what caused the power plants to go or, you know, how much like how safe they are, how likely they are all are, they all are to die of radiation poisoning. So pretty grim stuff. Okay. But the way that they uh, the way that they pass the time, you know, and avoid the existential angst is they try to remember episodes of the Simpsons. Um, oh, and sorry. so the the play starts with them trying to recount, you know, as in as vivid detail like line for line as they can the events of a particular episode of the simpsons which in this case is the episode um i think the episode is called cape fear where sideshow bob uh you know gets out of prison and tries to kill bart simpson on a boat which is ironically enough i think one of the like i've only ever seen like six episodes of the simpsons that i can remember but i feel like i've seen that one um, although it may it may just be cultural osmosis, but the episode itself is of course an homage to the movie versions of Cape Fear, um, like with Robert De Niro and the one before that. Um, and they literally the entire first act is just them in between like slightly disturbing uh, recollections about and reminiscences about uh, the disaster and what they remember from the fallout of just being like. Okay, so what's the next line? What does Sideshow Bob say? And then Homer's like, what? And are Itchy and Scratchy in this episode, or are we just misremembering that? Is that a different episode? Um, And that's the whole first act. So in the (laughs) second act, we jump forward, and it's five years later, and there's still no electricity. Um, Civilization is still a complete clusterfuck, but they have the same group of survivors has now become like a like a playhouse where they perform episodes of the Simpsons as best as they can. Uh, they actually trade for the rights to like basically them and other like uh, troops slash gangs of performers like bargain for the rights to do, uh, do particular plays or episodes, I guess, so that they don't, uh, they don't end up in conflict with each other. Um, so they're still performing this particular episode, but now you watch them like, or they're still obsessed with this particular episode, but now you watch them like they have props and they have uh, costumes and things like that. And, you know, it's funny because they can't remember the episode perfectly. So it's like an imperfect, an imperfect uh, stage version of just an episode of the Simpsons. And in between every, where the commercials would be, they still do commercials, but the commercials are all like, um, are basically just them recounting, uh, things that they miss from the world before the apocalypse, you know, because, you know, commercials have always had that sense of like, here's cool stuff that you could buy that would make you happy. And now it's here's cool stuff that you could no longer ha- that you no longer have, but you can remember that could make you happy. So it's mm. like, hey, remember how good Diet Coke was? Remember Panera Bread? It, that's basically like what commercials have become. And then they do like, you know, they also do like musical montages of like, basically top 40s hits that no one can listen to anymore but they they perform live to the best of their ability in between like sections of the episode where the commercial breaks would go uh and that's the whole second act is you say them you see them working on getting that episode together and sort of like at the same time like there's still people you know who are randomly wandering into the theater and every time that happens they're like are we gonna have a problem buddy like is somebody about to get shot uh you know so it's interesting, but uh, it really takes, and I liked it so far, but it really takes a turn. The thing that sells the whole show is the third act. The third act explicitly takes place 75 years after the second act. So 80 years after the um, initial, the initial apocalypse. Yeah. Yes. And we are now watching the play that has, that the play that they, that the episode has become and it has both evolved and regressed to like this weird form of like Greek tragic theater where like everybody learns like a chorus of people wearing masks that are designed to evoke like the weird, you know, yellow art style of the Simpsons, but are also like, you know, 
these tragic tragicomic masks that we associate mm-hmm. with like ancient Greek theater and they're dancing around and singing and reenacting the the plot of the episode but the episode has shifted dramatically at this point like it had you know mimetic drift because this is obvious this is now a play that's being performed by and for people who weren't alive uh, and ho- so they have no original frame of, frame of reference for what the Simpsons was so it has changed a lot so now we're like at the beginning of the episode is the power plant in Springfield blows up and most of the supporting characters in the Simpsons uh you know, only show up long enough to sing about how they are dying from the nuclear fallout. Um, and then we meet the Simpsons who are on a boat because the finale of the episode that this all started with takes place on a boat and they're sailing down a polluted river into the unknown, trying to decide, you know, what the future holds. And instead of having their weird hair, their weird hair has become like crowns, like representing sort of like, <laughs> royalty or majesty and onto the boat crawls mr burns so at some point mimetically in the last 80 years instead of sideshow bob the predominant villain in the simpsons universe has become mr burns which makes sense right because this is a world that was destroyed by greed and capitalism and nuclear power so who represents all of those things in the world of the simpsons so mr burns has gone from being just like this weird slightly gross old man who's sort of creepy into like this amalgamation of like sideshow bob and mr burns and like uh you know just like demonic uh, mythology so he's literally like he wears like this weird mask with horns and instead of having like long thin fingernails he has like Freddy Krueger claws on the end of his hands and he's attended by his two demonic familiars Itchy and Scratchy and uh, you know and they proceed to tie the Simpsons up and execute them one by one except for uh, Bart who contemplates letting Mr. Burns kill him but decides that no despite the fact that um everything is hopeless and he'll probably just die anyway. He's going to fight back and defeat Mr. Burns and continue sailing down the river. And so the whole thing just is this, you know, like I said, I guess I like, I could see how if you were like super into theater or whatever, you could be like, this is all just pretentious and pandering to, this is lowbrow people who, you know, want to pretend they're seeing something profound, but actually, you know, define the height of culture as the Simpsons. But whatever, fuck those people, because I thought it was a really interesting and clever consideration of the way in which, like, art evolves and like the and the way in which art probably originally evolved because all of the original greek plays and tragedies those were just like stories that people told each other around the campfire those were famous myths that sort of like metamorphized into like these more grant to have these more grandiose like themes and messages and performance styles that became like the the classics of like the you know dramatic canon or whatever and so to contemplate like a world where like that's it's that but it's also the simpsons is just like really interesting and it's also just like sad to think about like a future like the most moving part of the show for me was like um and i should say like there are multiple versions of this on youtube uh that are performed by all different levels of plays and they're all different levels of quality of the actors and also this the filming of the production but the the one that had the most views was the one that I watched. It was actually a bunch of high school kids performing it, which, you know, probably had its downsides in terms of they weren't exactly believable as like grizzled old, you know, veterans of the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to uh, when it came to the third act, like they played it very straight. So I've seen now versions of this where that third act is performed. And it's very sort of like tug in cheek and like waka waka. Look how silly these people are. Uh, singing about the Simpsons but in the version that like I saw first when they get to that third act it's like you have you know this woman in this you know basically she's wearing trash that's been done up to look like jewelry and a crown and to make her look like Marge Simpson and she's singing about like if only we could go back to Springfield remember Springfield where even at night there was light and 
if you didn't know what had happened to someone and you wanted to talk to them again, you could just call them on a telephone. And if you were hungry, you could just reach in the refrigerator and there would always be food. Like just the sheer melancholy of this idea of Springfield, this place we can't go back to, which is actually like this past, uh, this level of comfort and paradise that humanity has lost and will probably never get back. Just really was like heartbreakingly profound. Um, and this idea that that's all human beings are is we are creatures who like create art to fill the void for what we have lost and to keep us going, even when we know that doesn't really make sense was just phenomenal, but also just gave me this like deep vertigo, like, Oh man, we could all go any day. Now this could all go away like any day. Um, and we should be grateful for every moment that we have electricity and fucking refrigerators because we're taking it all way too much for granted. Um, and yeah, that was the play. It was very good. Mr. Burns, highly recommend. What a weird, funny sounding play about The Simpsons. It sounds like a really kooky little jaunt. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, actually what you really reminded me of. I was thinking like, this is what the road would be like if there was just like a theater troupe somewhere out there, <laughs> if you weren't from the perspective of this miserable guy, just like, and, and his kid trudging through the, the wasteland. No, I think that's more like one of my common, I mean, I haven't read all of the post-apocalyptic, so there might be other stuff that also covers these same themes, but one of my like common critiques, which I'm hardly the first person to make about post-apocalyptic literature is like, no one ever has a sense of humor. And it's right. like, that doesn't go away. Like, the fact that, you know, we're in the, the fact that, like, I mean, even if our sense of humor becomes very dark, uh, or our desire for, like, comfort becomes very twisted, it's like, it's not like, you know, in the post-apocalypse, no one ever tells stories or, you know, has jokes or whatever or you know if there's one thing i know about both of us is that like usually the times when we tell the most jokes are the times when things are absolutely the most fucked up beyond all recognition so it's like why would we think that like the post-apocalypse wouldn't just be full of people just like you know with incredibly dark and resilient senses of humor and i thought that this sort of captured that better um it also reminded me weren't you the one who told me that you had some sort of like deep uh sort of existential playing playing horizon zero dawn which i have never played oh yeah that was uh that that was my first known panic attack was i think i was too high playing that game and it it did indeed did cause that yeah so i think i felt i didn't it wasn't quite a panic attack but i i uh i think i felt that way a little bit watching this play after me i was like this is just a little this is a little too real how how easy it is to think about this future. Yeah, I think like with me and Horizon Zero Dawn, it's like, oh, I'm just hooked in fighting dinosaurs. This is fun. And oh, right. It could all end at any time. Like everything as we know it could just be wiped out and there would be nothing you could do. And time would march on. Oh, God. Oh, God. And then I fight another fun dinosaur and be like, oh, well, this isn't so bad now, though. So... <laughs> Did you ever play the sequel? I heard it wasn't very good. Like even by people who like the original. Uh no. I'm I'm not interested. It's like the first one was fun, but its whole novelty was fighting giant dinosaurs. And anything that doesn't just emphasize more the fighting giant um metal dinosaurs uh isn't isn't something I'm interested in. So and it sounds like the game didn't do that, so whatever. <laughs> Well, since we ended up talking about metal dinosaurs, I guess we're, we're done. We, we <laughs> So much nerd stuff, and ultimately it comes down, back down to, like, can I hit a giant dinosaur with a stick? That's all I really want in life. <laughs>